a wife uh, pulls her husband aside. And she says to him, look, our little boy isn't so little anymore. I think it's time you told him about the birds and the bees. And the husband says, really? Yes, she says, he needs to know. So the husband goes out walking with the little boy and says to him, do you remember yesterday when we were walking by the stream what we saw two people doing? And the little, little boy says, yes, that I do. Well, he says, birds and bees do that too. But the real story, but the real story to the story isn't birds and bees. It's about fish, which we'll get to later, I promise. Now, I know the story about fathers and a son and birds and bees is from a very different time. People don't talk like that anymore. Because our children are knowledgeable about sex in a way that is very, very different from mine or your generation. And over the past 20 years, access to information and images have created a different kind of generation. So I want you to remember what I didn't say. I'm not saying that we have an oversexed generation. I said we have a highly sexualized generation. And there's a difference there. When you say oversex, it's a, it's a performative action. But sexualization isn't about doing it. Because sexualization occurs in a myriad of ways, with clothing and music and language. You see it in the way people dress and the music they listen to with the slang and code words that they use for it, in the way that they dance. This latest generation is perhaps the most sexualized in human history. That said, I usually don't rate my sermons. They're typically G-rated, but today's sermon will be different. I'll be discussing adult themes, and if you think you don't have the desire to listen to it, or you're with someone who you think shouldn't listen to it, now is your time to run. Uh, since these uh, sermons are recorded in podcasts, uh, let it be noted for the record that the only person who ran out. <laughs> but there are people trying to get in right now. You see, I want to talk about Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and Roy Moore and Charlie Rose and George Takai, Jeffrey Tambor, Louis C.K., and whoever else has been outed in the past 24 hours. Because unless you've been living under a rock somewhere, or never turn on a TV or listen to the radio, or read a newspaper, or if you haven't spoken to your friends, you know of the alleged behavior of these men. And the new names that seem to come out almost every day. The thing is that in some cases, the allegations coming out are not from one or two people, but from a dozen or many dozens of people. So it's really hard to say that these are alleged crimes because of the preponderance of accusation in fact. On one hand, you'd be inclined to think that there's been a sudden explosion of sexual predation in the world, but that's certainly not true. It's been a story about accountability. 
because these stories are as old as storytelling, because they are the byproduct of the intersection of power and money and desire to get ahead in a cutthroat world. And if someone to make this about politics, they're wrong. It has nothing to do with liberals or conservatives, Democrats or Republicans, Bill Clinton or Donald Trump, because the stories may be different, but they are the same in all the wrong ways, that people in authority and power preying on others who would be afraid to reveal the offense because they might lose some advancement or a job or just be shunned. So we need to know what Judaism says about these things because it's not enough to say how bad it is and it is wrong because we know that it's wrong and we know that it's bad. But we need to know why Judaism says it's wrong and how we can teach it to ourselves and to our children. Because why is this worse than if they had stolen her purse or if they had hacked her bank account? Because it is. These accusations are much worse. On one hand, these reports reflect the sad and hard truth about the centuries-long mitigation of women in society of the generations of women who were told to smile and be quiet, of the women who did the same job as a man did but were told not to complain that they were getting 30 or 40 or 50% less than a man because they were told, you know, he has a family to feed, of the women who had little legal standing, who were never thought more than madmen-type secretaries who fetched coffee, bought birthday gifts for their boss's wife, send flowers to an aggrieved mistress, or comforted the employer at the end of a bad day. Which is to say that women more often than we would like to admit were things and not full standing people. And if you ask why didn't they lodge complaints? Because in a hierarchy of men, who was going to listen to them anyway? In the 3,500-year-long story of Jewish tradition, we have to acknowledge that all is not flowers and sunshine in that story either. That there are elements of Jewish tradition that do mitigate women and refuse to empower them in the same light as men. But by the same token, we need to judge everything in the context in which it lives. And I am also proud, as you should be, of the fact that Jewish tradition is filled with protections of women and the stories of women who rose above the chauvinistic straits to teach us all something about how truthful messages come in all packages. And while gender makes for differences, we should leave those differences to biology and not differentiate anyone on the base of what sex they happen to be. Because when the Torah speaks of the creation of man and woman, it concludes by saying, Ish isha bi baram shamam adam that men and women he created and he called them human. In other words, both are people, both are equal, both are human. There are women in Jewish tradition who have no names, but there are many more who are full people whose name we know well. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Ruth, Devorah, Miriam, Bruria, Hannah, Sedesh, Golda Meir. And the work here is not yet done. But even 50 years ago, this bat mitzvah would have been an outlier, 
an exception. The idea of a woman going to medical school or law school or rabbinical school were outlier ideas. Yes, I know people did it, but they were sensational, not normal. Which is to say something. Now, most people think that there are a lot of bad people running around in the world, but that's not true. There aren't a lot of bad people. There are a lot of bad ideas. And bad ideas are worse than bad people because you can stop a bad person, but bad ideas suck in even good people. The tearing of society between men and women is a bad idea, period. And hopefully we are completely and fully turning the page on this everywhere. But the other idea is maybe now we can turn to a deeper one. An idea that emerges from the kind of hypersexualization that we see in society. Where sex is used everywhere to get us to buy something, to eat something, to travel somewhere, to watch or listen to something. Because if sex is used for everything, then how are we supposed to know? And how are our children supposed to know what sex is really meant for and when? I think it is profoundly telling that the Torah is very skimpy on details of romantic relationships. We hear, yes, of people having sex and marrying, but we seldom hear how they met or how they felt about one another. But this morning... Jacob Jacob heads north from his birth home to the home of his uncle, where he meets his cousin, a young woman named Rachel Rachel. Their meeting is perhaps one of the most poignant, and yes, long before they were Romans, also romantic in all the biblical literature. When Jacob meets Rachel for the first time, the Torah tells us that he hugs her and he cries, which left many a rabbinic commentator at an absolute loss. After all, how could Jacob be so forthcoming physically with a woman that he just met that he's not married to? Most commentators ignore the entire event because one way to avoid a problem is to ignore it. But one, Rabbi Moshe al-Sheikh, a 15th century Turkish scholar, he doesn't ignore it. He says that Jacob hugged her and he cried because he knew that he had just found his soulmate. And with finding her, he knew that all of his wandering and loneliness was now over. And in seeing Rachel, Jacob had found where he belonged. And in the very, very next verse, Yaakov, Jacob, had straight for her father, his uncle. And he asked for the right to marry her. Which is to say that feeling love must be connected to deep responsibility to, with the life of the person that you love. It is for that reason that only humans, only humans, have sex face to face. No other creature does. And it is telling in so many ways why. Because the point of human sex is never just sex. Sex to be fulfilling has to be directed beyond it. That is why sexual violence isn't like hitting someone in the face or stealing their money. Because when you hit someone or take their money, those are things on the outside. But sex is about your inside. And its power draws from the intimacy of what makes me and you who we are. Because we are, who we are only becomes apparent in the deepest and most intimate moments of our life. And when someone comes and takes it, they say that it's not mine. 
They're saying that it's theirs. And it doesn't deserve love and kindness, only gratification, their gratification, and only when they decide to take it. And it may be that one of the things that comes out from all of these turpid and horrible stories of sexual intimidation and the prowling on of young men and women isn't the issue of educating people about boundaries and sensitivity, and it isn't about educating people about when consent is genuine and real and when it is fabricated, but in a culture that is so deeply sexualized, trying to tell us day in and day out that your sexuality and the finding of sex are noble trophies that establish you as an adult and as successful. It might be that the most significant thing to come out from all of this is the realization, finally, that the search for love is more rewarding than the hunt for sex. And what is love? There's an old rabbinic story that tells it best. A rabbi sees a man sitting down to eat and he says to him, Young man, why are you eating that fish? Because I love fish, the man says. Oh, you love the fish, the rabbi says? That's why you took it out of the water and you killed it and boiled it. Don't tell me you love the fish, the rabbi says. You love yourself. And because the fish tastes good to you, you took it out of the water and killed it and boiled it. Which is to say that so much of what people think is love is actually fish love. People mistake thinking that what, that what you, that you give to those who you love. But the real answer is that you love those to whom you give. Shabbat Shalom.